From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today in our Trump Talk segment, we'll speak with Kai Wright of The Nation. He's been doing some in-depth reporting from one hotbed of support for Donald Trump, Eastern Long Island. He's host and producer of a terrific new podcast from The Nation. It's called The United States of Anxiety. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also, the left in Britain. Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour left, won a big victory in Labour's bitter leadership battle with 62% of the vote. We'll have comment and analysis from D.D. Guttenplan in London. First up, Katha Pollitt says, it's time to get active for Hillary. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking with us today. We all have friends who are feeling less than enthusiastic about Hillary, even after the Monday night debate, including the people who voted for Bernie and who now are not eager to vote for Hillary. Bernie voters spend a lot of time and energy arguing about how bad Hillary Clinton is. They'd be happy to go over those arguments with you again You have something that you want to say to all those people. I address my column to people who are, however reluctantly, officially for Hillary now. Uh, I think there are probably some Jill Stein voters and some Bernie write-in dead-enders that nothing I could say in the nation would persuade them. And that's certainly true if you look at the comment threads below (laughs) below this this column. Uh, I wasn't too persuasive to them. But what I'm trying to do in this column is to say to people, look, you're, you've said you're going to vote for Hillary, but that's not enough. You have to get active. Nobody else is going to knock on those doors. Nobody else is going to make those phone calls and go to those swing states and make those donations. We need you. And like every other political campaign, uh, the vote is only a piece of it. There's also all the work that goes on before Election Day, and I'm encouraging people, urging people to get involved with that. I have friends who say if Hillary loses, it's her own fault because she's such a poor candidate. Well, I don't happen to think she is a poor candidate. I don't think she's the world's best candidate. And of course, since Bernie Sanders didn't win the nomination because people thought she was a better candidate, we will never find out if he would have done better. I tend not to think so, but nobody knows. I think she's a pretty good candidate. And the things that she's not particularly good at, I do think, come under the heading of sexist expectations for women. For example, Hillary should smile more. She sounds like a librarian. Uh, Somebody who was a Chuck Todd actually said she was (laughs) overprepared. What does overprepared mean? She's running to be president. But, you know, it's like she can't show that she knows anything, because we don't like women who show that they know things. She's, uh, people say she's not likable. You know, if you look at the list of people who have been elected president, I don't think you'll find that likability is their main quality. And I think that uh, likability itself is so gendered. It's so, you know, people, I don't like her voice. Oh, I really hate her laugh. Uh, she's too old. All this is just totally sexist. 
people just need to focus on what's really at stake in this election in real life, and they need to get busy so that the better candidate wins. But if she loses, it will be her own fault. No. If she loses, it will be the fault of all those people who couldn't be bothered to get involved, um, which is an astonishing number of people who, who don't vote, who don't donate, who don't campaign, who are just, you know, disengaged. They sp- they'd rather spend all their time fighting on Facebook and Twitter. But Bernie was better. Bernie's issues were my issues. I've heard that many times. Well, you know, in a way, Bernie's issues were my issues, too. But the fact is, Bernie lost the election. You know, the, the people who say that, they're sort of like, um, oh, you know, I once proposed to a girl to marry me, and she said no, and that's why I'm never going to marry anybody else. Um, <laughs> you know? You know, you have another very good argument in response to this, which is, well, you could just quote Bernie. Bernie said, politics does not end the day after the election. Bernie says, our movement must mobilize to make sure that Hillary fulfills the pledges made in the platform. That's what a political movement does. Well, exactly. Now, you know, in my opinion, it was never realistic to think that Bernie would win the nomination. Um, But he and his movement had a huge effect. They put into play issues that were not in in play. He changed the platform, moved it in a much further uh, liberal left direction. And I think they should declare victory instead of grieving. I mean, well, of course, grieving is okay, but instead of resenting and marinating in conspiracy theories about why that, that he really won, they should declare victory and move on. Because there's going to be more elections and there's going to be a whole world of uh, political struggle after the election. And here's another thing. Um, you know, people talk as if they can single out, like, I'm not voting from Hillary from, for Hillary from the way the whole election will go. You know, there are a lot of people on the ballot. And if people don't show up because they've been so discouraged about Hillary, that means that the Senate goes down. We don't get more representatives, all those local officials, all those grassroots politicians, all those local judges and mayors and all the rest, they go down too. We will be farther from, than ever from taking back the many, many state houses that are uh, you know, solidly Republican now. And I think that uh, people tend to think of it more as if they were electing a king or queen and nothing else matters, but it isn't like that at all. Okay, here's another argument. Social media is the new political battleground. I spend my time organizing on Twitter. It's a very big job, and it's very time-consuming. I spend some time on Twitter, too. And I also have a Facebook page. I agree with the author of Hamilton that, you know, Twitter isn't voting. Arguing with your friends isn't voting. Facebook isn't voting. Only voting is voting. So if what you're doing is just uh, gratifying your desire to um, fight with people or write clever zingers or humiliate your enemies, uh, that is not really relevant. You're in New York. We're in California. A lot of our friends say, or some of our friends say, I live in a safe state where Hillary will definitely win, so I don't have to vote for Hillary. What do you say to those people? Well, I think that those people need to take a look back at the 2000 election, 
when a lot of people voted for Ralph Nader on the theory that their vote was safe. But as it turned out, wouldn't it have been better if Gore, instead of winning by 500,000 votes, had uh, won by 2 million votes? And I think that we think of our vote as if it's a very deep personal expression of our own precious snowflakeness. But that's, <laughs> that's not what it is. It is a, it is a, uh, a transaction that takes five minutes with only one question. It's not about your deep conscience and your personality. Well, another of the things you say in your column is even if you live in a safe state, you should go to a swing state. If you're in California, you can go to Nevada. You can canvas in Nevada. There's buses that Hillary runs to Nevada every weekend uh, with people who want to help her win. It would really be good to win Nevada. But, you know, I don't want to go to Nevada to canvas there. I, I need to stay home and, I don't know, take care of my cat. Okay, I have cats too. <laughs> uh, but the lucky thing is, is that you can get on the sofa with your kitty <laughs> and you can make phone calls to Nevada. Um, there's a whole, if you go to the, the volunteer site, you will find there's, you can, uh, you can get connected to the, the phone system and they'll give you a whole bunch of names and phone numbers and you call those people and you talk to them. And that's, that's important too. You say in your column that uh, Hillary is more progressive than she looks to other progressives. What, what, what do you mean? Well, you know, I happen to think that Hillary being assertively pro-choice is an immense positive. She came out, and this was before Bernie. Bernie was playing catch-up here. She came out in favor of getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. Now, the Hyde Amendment uh, bans federal funds for poor women's abortions. Um, and if some states make up that money, but many, many don't. And what that means is many, many, many poor women um, are forced to uh, bear children that they don't feel in a position to be good mothers to. So I think that's a tremendous step. And, you know, people don't think of that. Is, you know, that goes in the basket of women's issues that uh, too many progressive men aren't really concerned with. They don't think of that as an economic issue. They don't think of it as a justice issue or a fairness issue or a health issue. It's just, oh, yeah, okay, that's her, that's women. And I think that that's huge. She is in favor of paid family leave, which is something that every developed country in the world except us has. She's, and that's also huge. She's in favor of, you know, the promotion of equal pay for women. That's pretty big. She's in favor of, you know, support for the things we like, the things we like. She's in favor of raising taxes on rich people. She's you in know, favor of debt-free college. She's in she, favor of raising the minimum wage. Exactly. Exactly. She gets no credit for this. So, Katha, any concluding thoughts? Well, yeah, I do have a concluding thought. And one is that... Donald Trump is going to be a real disaster for this country if he gets in. And one way, many ways, one, one important way is the Supreme Court, and not just the Supreme Court, but all the other federal judgment, judges that will be placed on the bench for the rest of our lives. This will be disastrous. You know, the, the judiciary is a third branch of government. Basically, you're saying, well, it's okay, so he'll have the White House, 
Uh, and then the Republicans will also have the Senate and Congress because the idea that that won't happen if Trump gets in is a fantasy. And, and then let's just give him the judiciary, too. I mean, really, is this what we want? Um, this will mean more blacks and Latinos prevented from voting. This will mean an end to women's reproductive rights. This will mean an end to uh, any cases that come before on workers' rights will go the wrong way. This is really serious stuff. And I think it's the only people who can really, with conscience, say that it's all one to them. They don't care. Their precious little vote for, you know, their mourning for Bernie Sanders is enough so that it's either way is fine with them. Those people will never need, they, they or anyone they will never need reproductive health care. <laughs> no one's going to interfere with their vote, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, I have to say, I really think there's a real whiff of, of privilege in, in, in that. Katha's new column in The Nation is addressed to ambivalent Hillary voters. Thank you, Katha. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Why does Donald Trump appeal to so many voters? The Nation has launched a new podcast to explore that question. It focuses on one hotbed of support for Trump, Eastern Long Island. The podcast, which is produced in partnership with WNYC, is called The United States of Anxiety. The host and producer is Kai Wright. He's Features Editor of The Nation. He's a longtime radio guy. Last time he was here, we talked about the shootings of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando Castile in St. Paul. Kai Wright, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Well, instead of focusing on Donald Trump himself, in the United States of Anxiety, you focus on one suburb and, and a few people, a woman who's a Trump supporter, and in the first episode, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. Why did you decide to do it that way, and how did you find the people? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's an important idea in this podcast is we are not focused on November 8th, you know, and I think that's a, a hard thing we're asking people is because I, like many others, are terrified about November 8th. There's a clear yes. present danger that needs to be dealt with on that day. But whatever the outcome on that day, it's also true that we will still have the debate that his campaign has, I don't think, created but revealed in the United States about who is an American, who belongs here, and what our road forward is together. And, and so we want to get started on that conversation right now, and that's what the podcast is really about. And so we, we set aside the, the basket of deplorables, as it were, <laughs> um, and tried to find folks who are genuinely wrestling with America's future, who are people who, you know, I disagree with on a great many things, uh, but who are genuinely trying to figure out what is the road forward and are genuinely scared and genuinely feel like America's lost its mojo and for whatever reason have arrived at Donald Trump. And so we, we picked the suburbs of Long Island because it was there that we're, see, there we're seeing a, you know, all of the great themes of this debate are playing out. It's, you know, it's a place that has seen dramatic uh, demographic change in the course of the last 
20 to 30 years, uh, where it has gone from a, uh, an overwhelmingly white place uh, to a place where a third of the population, uh, that may not be exactly right, but somewhere to a quarter, from a quarter to a third of the population, depending on where you're at on the island, is foreign-born. And where it has you know, produced a steady stream of, Republican, of strong Republican leaders in the past, but is now a place where Democrats are contending. You know, and so it's undergoing a lot of cultural change, political change, and economic change that we've seen, you know, and, and, and so it's, the, it's a place where we can start finding folks who are wrestling with that, and that's, that, that's why we went out there. So the first uh, episode of the United States of Anxiety opens with a Trump supporter who's a mom and who works as a respiratory therapist. Her name is Patty Dwyer. A couple of years before Trump announced he was running for president, she became an activist in a movement called Overpasses for America. She told you about it. Let's listen. My girlfriend and I had seen a movement going on all across America. Uh, it was called Overpasses for America. And um, we thought that was a great idea. What a small little thing we could do to help bring some patriotism back and uh, just stand on the overpass with the American flag. Cars go crazy. But when we first started to do it, we'd get a few beeps, you know, and just, and it was fun and whatever. But as time went on, the sound of the beeping horns drowned you out. They were happy to see us up there. You know, we get a few fingers now and again, but who cares about that? Overpasses for America, we should make it clear, in her particular group, Long Island Patriots, uh, I believe the sign that they were holding up said uh, something about impeach Obama. Give him the maximum sentences allowed by law is what their, their website says. So that was where Patty started. That was before Trump. And then she told you how she got interested in Trump. But few regions of the country have been hurt worse than Suffolk. You know that. And it wasn't until I went to his rally. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, Suffolk Nassau region of New York has lost more than half of its manufacturing jobs since 1990. That's not good, folks. I realized that the media was only presenting 5% of what he was saying. And it totally blew me away. I left there crying you know, choking up. Uh, I'm like, oh my God. I just can't believe that this man, with all his money and all that he could be doing right now, like he could be sitting in the most beautiful place on the face of the earth, just twiddling some, yeah, Marlago, or like Ireland or Italy in a beautiful palace with servants, and that he'd want to make a difference here. Kai, you point out uh, that Patty has gone through some rough times over the last several years. Tell us about that. Well, there are several interesting things about Patty, I think. You know, one, first off, this overpasses for America business. You know, she, she feels there's a divide amongst them. And she feels strongly she does not want to be associated with the, the, the strain of them that are, in fact, for impeaching Obama. And, and many much darker things. I, I believe the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center has classified them as a hate group. But uh, she says her, her part of Overpasses America, that there's a whole other strain of them, that they are just pro-patriotism. And she was very emphatic with us about that and was offended if, that if it came off uh, that she was part of that other group. She really is, has this identity of herself as not a racist. And I, you know, I have to 
you know, I have to trust her on that. I have to take her at her, her word, you know? Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it is notable that a lot of the social conservative stuff, the race baiting, the, the sexuality baiting, all of that is stuff that she is not drawn to. And she was, in fact, in 2008, an Obama vote, voter. She voted for Obama in 2008. But now when you talk to her, she has this enormous sense of loss, and just this enormous sense of things that she's lost. Even though, even though right now she's not doing that bad, right? Honestly, as with many Trump supporters, as polls suggest, you know, I mean, she's someone who does not have a college education, but man, you know, started working right out of high school, has worked her way up, uh, makes a nice living. Uh, she says she's seen her hours cut during uh, uh, in recent years as she works for a hospital, and hospitals in general are struggling to adjust to Obamacare. Uh, she says that that's led to some hours lost for her, but you know, she has a new house, she has a new husband. But the thing is, before she arrived at where she's at today, between 2007, between when she voted for Barack Obama and when she got on those overpasses, she went through a lot of things that, on one hand, are kind of prosaic, but at the same time are really profound in an individual's life, right? Like she had a divorce. She had this dream house that she was in. She lost the house in the course of the divorce because of property taxes. Her son ended up struggling with addiction. I, I cannot tell you how many people we've talked to uh, in White Long Island who have children, are friends, who are caught in the opiate epidemic. We have a clip of Patty talking about her son's drug problems. Uh, let's listen. Thank God it, it fell short of oxycodone and, and heroin. Thank, thank God. I mean, Patrick, I think really his conscience kicked in and, and he went through a series of events like once he was arrested for stealing some scrap metal behind someone's home with a friend. And they called me and I went over to the house that the parent was questioning, you know, what was going on. She said she was going to call the police. Now, I had gotten some education under my belt to know that if we ever reached this point, that I would welcome him being arrested. So I kind of shook my hand and said, okay, you stole. Uh, they're going to call the police. Okay. And there he was. He was put in the police car. And I always pictured that moment. I pictured that I'd be like so devastated, you know, whatever. And I really was given the grace to realize this was a moment of possible healing. And so when he turned and looked over, you know, his shoulder in the backseat of the, you know, police car and looked at me, you know, with his face, you know, his frightened face, his scared face and all, I just like waved at him. Bye-bye. His frightened face, his scared face. Uh, Kai, that's an amazing image. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite arresting. And and this is something I just I cannot tell you. I did not appreciate the depth and breadth of the opiate epidemic in in both working class and middle class white communities. Uh, I, I just didn't appreciate it. I saw, knew it on paper, but not about the, the just the, the, the deep the way in which it has touched so many lives. And I don't think one of that, so this is one of the things that I have learned in the course of reporting this podcast is it's, I think it's an underreported story that does start to explain at least some of the folks um, when you hear this horror about the drugs coming across the border and the, and the, and the dissolution of their communities and that no one cares. That's part of what they're talking about. Um, and, and I think that's something that we're going to have to be paying attention to moving forward. But in general, you know, I mean, it, it's this sense of loss. And the reality is that they have lost something. These are people who 
very much, who, are, who, who quite well benefited from the social contract of the 20th century. Now, the reality is that a lot of us, a lot of people in the United States were left out of that social contract. But nonetheless, white people with college, without college degrees were beneficiaries of it. And that contract is gone. And, and it's clear to them that it's gone. And it's clear that it is not going to be available to their children. And then they're watching all of these ills come across, uh, including the opioid epidemic, opioid epidemic, come across the lives of their children. And they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. And along comes this guy uh, who says, well, you know what the problem is? It's quite simple. It's, uh, it's those, you know, did you notice also that your neighborhood is, is full of a different type of people all of a sudden? It's full of these immigrants. And that's the problem. And we have a clip of Patty talking about immigrants. Coming over the borders are a lot of people that have been encouraged to come over because Mexico doesn't want to deal with them. So they can empty their prisons and send the people over here. Yes, is it a small percent? That can very well be. But why? Why would we do this? Why would we do this to ourselves? The first episode of the United States of Anxiety podcast also features an immigrant woman on Long Island. Uh, You call her Lenny. She's uh, from the Dominican Republic. She became a citizen. She told her story to Julianne Hing, who writes about immigrant communities for the nation. Let's listen. I love this country. You are a citizen. You believe in the Constitution. So learn about the country where you live. Google it. If you know another place like after United States better than here, let me know that I move. <laughs> She's from the Dominican Republic, and she got her citizenship in 2007. And then she fell in love with Juan. She knew he had overstayed a tourist visa and could be deported at any time, but she wasn't worried about it. If something happened, I don't care. I'm not even asking, like, hey, okay, whatever, okay, whatever, you know? They moved into an apartment and had a baby together. Juan was a successful electrician. He was working seven to seven, and he, he working a lot. That's why, you know, he made good money and he supported myself. But, you know, bro, he's that kind of person. He loved go to the bed and everybody jump on him. It felt like the American dream was in Lenny's grasp. So after 13 years, when nothing happens, you get confident. And one day, boom, your dream goes down. Her constant state of stress and uncertainty about the future started on a Friday in February. Juan was arrested. Lenny's brother was in the car with him when it happened. They just got put over. You know, like a woo-woo-woo with the light and everything, and my brother get put over. My brother called me, I remember that day, and he said he got arrested. And I was like, how come? I say it's over. I say it's over, you're going to get deported. Police arrested Juan for having a fake driver's license. Lenny says her brother was the one who was driving that day, and Juan was just getting a ride to work. If Julianne Hing sounds familiar, that's because she reported for us here on this podcast from Nevada about the Republican uh, primary there. Kai, what did you and Julianne find out about Juan's arrest and immigration status? Uh, so he is currently facing deportation still. He is in detention uh, if uh, his case unfolds as 2.5 million people who have been deported under Barack Obama's, uh, under the Obama administration have unfolded. He will, in fact, be deported. That is like, that is the likely outcome. You know, one of the 
things that we're wrestling with in this podcast or is we listen to Donald Trump and we listen to his message and uh, about immigrants and it's horrifying and it's scary. And he says these, these ridiculous things, but at its core, he is saying the same thing that Democrats are saying that Barack Obama has said that Hillary Clinton said that is the consensus across Washington, which is that, there are good immigrants we want to have in the United States, and there are bad immigrants we don't want to have in the United States, and that somehow we can divide reality up into that. You know, but the problem with that is twofold. One is that, uh, like any family, <laughs> um, there are people we like and people we don't. You know, uh, in, in order to, in many cases, if you want to have the church lady who is a huge benefit to her community and and adds to the economy and does all the things that we want from citizens in our nation, then you also are going to have to have her son who might be a bum, <laughs> you know? And, and, that's, and that's the reality of life and families is you cannot divide people up into these very clear-cut ideas of good and bad. And then once you go down that road, then you start, then you're in the messy business of deciding, okay, where does bad fall? Who's bad? Who don't we want? You know? And in order to reach the kinds of numbers that you need to reach on deportation in order to maintain uh, this, the, the, the fiction of security that, that, that is behind this, this chasing out the bad people idea, you have to deport large numbers of people and you have to start creating crimes. So Juan is being deported for having a false driver's license, which he needed in order to get her out of the United States, and for having been in possession of marijuana 13 years ago. And these are not crimes for which that would, these were not a deportable crimes. These are misdemeanors. They were not deportable crimes at one time in our nation in the, in the relatively near past. They had to become that in order to reach the deportation numbers that the Obama administration was, was shooting for itself. So that, that's, that's a lot to say in what we're in, in a lot of what we're going to try to unpack in this, in the series. But this, this, this comfort, we're giving ourselves a false comfort by saying, oh, well, Donald Trump, he's crazy. He's crazy on immigration. We just have to beat him. The ideas that he represents on immigration are actually are actually the consensus ideas in Washington, D.C. The nation's new podcast is The United States of Anxiety. I have to add, the production values are so much higher than ours. It features, <laughs> it features so many different voices, every one of them fascinating. You can find The United States of Anxiety at thenation.com. You can subscribe at iTunes. I do. Kai Wright, congratulations on the new podcast, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on the ongoing Spectacular Podcast. Now it's time to talk about the left in Britain, and for that we turn to D.D. Guttenplan in London. He's the nation's editor-at-large. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. His latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an ebook at thenation.com slash ebooks. Speaking with him will be our senior producer, Alan Minsky. Alan is a regular contributor to Truthdig. He's program director at Pacifica Radio's Los Angeles station, KPFK, and he follows British politics closely. Alan, over to you. Thanks, John. So, D.D. Guttenplan, tell us what happened over the weekend at the Labor Party conference in Liverpool, England. Well, you'll remember that Jeremy Corbyn 
was elected leader of the Labour Party last year after Labour lost the election and Ed Miliband resigned. Uh, and he was a surprise winner. He was the left's flag bearer in the contest, but he was supposed to be just kind of a token candidate, except that his candidacy sparked a huge wave of enthusiasm, particularly among young people in Britain, who flooded into the party, and also because Miliband, before he left, had changed the rules to let people become supporters, so you didn't have to be a full dues-paying member of the Labour Party. You could just pay three pounds, about five dollars, and that allowed you to vote in the leadership election. And Corbyn won. Corbyn was someone who had been a serial rebel. In other words, he had never towed the party line in Parliament. He had often gone contrary to the wishes of party leaders. For example, he voted against the Iraq War when Tony Blair was party leader. He often voted against Gordon Brown's policies. He was a serial rebel and therefore an unlikely candidate to become leader of the party. And once he was leader of the party, he was immediately attacked from the right, partly by the former Blair people, but also by his parliamentary colleagues who were perhaps understandably reluctant to unify around a man who they felt had never unified around them in the past. So this went on for most of the past year, which effectively left the Conservative Party without an opposition. And that meant that uh, even though after Brexit, David Cameron resigned, the Conservative Party imploded, Theresa May, who was never elected by anyone except her local constituents to Parliament, suddenly became Prime Minister. Britain voted to leave the European Union, and particularly after that vote, Labour parliamentary members, many of them blamed Corbyn for not being sufficiently energetic in supporting the campaign to remain in the European Union, and so they forced a re-election, which is what happened on Saturday. He was challenged by Owen Smith, a Welsh MP, and that was the vote on Saturday, it was essentially a, a rerun of the Labour Party leadership election. And having rebelled against Corbyn, having attacked him, having called him ineffective, at the end of the voting on Saturday, Corbyn emerged with a greater margin of victory than he'd had the first time, and also winning in every segment of the party. In other words, not just members, but also supporters and also the labor unions who vote in a block vote. All of them backed him. So he emerged stronger than he'd ever been. So if, if the idea was to weaken and challenge Corbyn, his opponents failed spectacularly. Jeremy Corbyn was someone who I was aware of in British politics before these past couple of years. And my thoughts on Corbyn were that he was best known as somebody who took very strong anti-war stances. He was somebody who was uh, very favorable towards a multicultural Britain. He comes from North London, a very diverse constituency. I hadn't thought of Corbyn as being defined by taking a hard left economic position. But my interpretation of him being propelled to the Labour Party leadership is that it is his anti-austerity positions that have made him so popular with the base and the broad membership of the Labour Party. Well, I think it's partly that. It's true that the opening created for him to win last year was because none of the other candidates who were running, who had all served either in Tony Blair's or Gordon Brown's cabinet or Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet, had articulated an alternative to austerity. Certainly not a clear alternative to austerity, whereas Corbyn had. But he also had a bit of that kind of Bernie Sanders thing of being 
so uncharismatic, had a kind of negative charisma, and he had a reputation for integrity. His main issues weren't economic in the past. His main issues were support of the Irish struggle for independence and for unification, support of the Palestinian struggle, opposition to the war in Iraq. He was someone who was a sort of staunch left internationalist and not someone, one of the debacles that brought his opponents down last year was that the conservatives forced a vote on cuts to welfare. And instead of opposing these cuts, the other people who were running for Labor Party leadership decided it would look bad if they opposed cuts to welfare politically. So instead they abstained, whereas Corbyn stood up and said, no, I oppose these cuts. That, again, that gave him a lot of credibility. Well, the response to him over the past year, not just from the Labour Party, Blair and Brown wing of the party, but also from the rest of the British political establishment, but also from the political media, has been downright apoplectic. It's been stunning to see the media's treatment of Corbyn. And what I've sensed is that this has played into a rebellion from people who do not see the political establishment and the political media as their allies to rally around Corbyn. Uh, do you have that sense? Well, I partly have that sense. Again, I think there are two separate strands to the anti-Corbyn sentiment. And one was definitely the sort of people whose ideology he challenged and displaced. So whether you call them Blairites or corporatists or neoliberals. Corbyn was against all of that, and they're against him, and many of them still remain in positions in, of power in the Labour Party. But there was a whole other tranche of opposition to Corbyn, in part because of the vote to leave Europe and what people viewed as his incredibly ineffectual campaigning on that issue, and generally his lack of effective opposition during the year he's been the leader of the opposition. He stood up and said things in Parliament, but he's caused the Tories no damage at all. And it's only because they were falling on their own swords over Brexit that the party looked so ineffectual and such a shambles for such a period. But now Theresa May has reorganized the party. She's taken forward programs that have no electoral mandate, and she's getting no effective opposition from Corbyn. So there were people who thought, well, we like Corbyn's policies and we liked him personally, but he's been catastrophically ineffective as a leader, admittedly under fire, but nonetheless, there were also people who thought it was time for him to go who didn't disagree with him politically, but just thought personally he wasn't up to the job. But those people have been decisively out-organized and out-hustled by momentum, which is the sort of internal Corbyn loyalist pressure group that organized his campaign the first time and organized as a kind of supporters group inside the party this time. And they did a fantastic job of getting their people out and getting their people to vote. Well, I want to go back a little bit to Brexit and watching what transpired there, not unlike Corbyn's ascendancy, the British political establishment was shocked by the result of the Brexit vote. Brexit got a lot of labor votes. But the campaign for Brexit, the coalition to take Britain out of Europe was much broader. There has always been a kind of left opposition to, to Europe as a kind of corporate superstate. And indeed, Corbyn, before he became Labour leader, was part of that, which is one of the reasons people suspected he wasn't giving his full effort to the Remain in Europe case. But as to whether Corbyn can attract Labour voters, particularly in the sort of northern left-behind industrial towns who backed Brexit in overwhelming numbers, it's possible. 
And also there's the question of Scotland. When you look at the rebellion against London in Scotland, a large part of it has been motivated in the rise of the Scottish National Party, the SNP, is the sense that in the Blairite and Brown labor era, the Scottish people who traditionally are much further to the left than the English population on balance felt that they had no opportunity for representation. Corbyn leading the Labour Party would suggest that that point of view may be revisited. Your thoughts on the capacity of Corbyn to win back support in Scotland and, and if not, the almost impossibility of Labour winning a national election without a significant well, chunk, no. chunk of Scotland's votes? My frank view is that labor is done in Scotland, and even if not, Corbyn is not the man to bring Scotland around. I mean, only today, the National Executive Committee of the Labor Party decided to give Scotland and Wales more representation. The National Executive Committee is the kind of ruling committee of the party, because the party conference is still going on as we speak. And the new Scottish member to the NEC is an anti-Corbyn person named by the head of the Labour Party in Scotland. I think what is potentially realistic is at some point in the future, a different Labour Party might be willing to work in coalition with the SNP, or the SNP, if Scots become disenchanted with it, but they show no signs of doing that. I mean, the SNP has a tight grip on Scotland, and I don't really see Corbyn or any other Labour leader loosening that grip. It's also worth mentioning that Scotland voted by two to one to remain in Europe. So the Scots are among the people who are furious with Corbyn for his ineffectual champion of the European cause. My left-wing friends around Europe and Britain and in the United States are celebrating Corbyn's victory in a way that is analogous to the euphoria that would have been unleashed had Bernie Sanders won the Democratic Party nomination in the United States. How do you feel about the Sanders-Corbyn parallel? Well, I feel your friends are misguided. (laughs) As I've told people on both sides of the ocean, I've met Jeremy Corbyn, I've met Bernie Sanders. Jeremy Corbyn is no Bernie Sanders. The first thing is that Sanders has shown repeatedly his willingness and his ability to work in coalition alliance with people who he doesn't necessarily agree with, and that's a quality that Corbyn has never displayed. Secondly, Sanders, he has a a kinder nature than Corbyn. And thirdly, he's more effective as a politician. Now, having said all of that, Sanders is going to be the senator from Vermont, and Corbyn is going to be the leader of the British Labour Party. So he must have something going for him. But it's not clear. Well, let's put it this way. I think your friends are celebrating far too soon. I think it is time for the rest of the Labour Party to stop throwing their toys out of the pram, as they say in Britain. And give Corbyn a chance to show whether he actually can be an effective leader, whether he can unite the party, and whether he can effectively oppose the Tories, for example, on their plans to reintroduce selective education and grammar schools in Britain, which is something that wasn't on any Tory manifesto, but that Theresa May has announced is her pet policy, and which Labour so far shows no signs of being able to stop. So, If he can stop the Tories from privatizing the NHS, if he can stop the Tories from reintroducing selection in education, if he can stop them from doing the things that they want to do but that Labor has pledged that they shouldn't do, then maybe it will be time to celebrate. But it's also possible that this will turn out to be one of those heartbreaking left dead ends that in fact end up setting us back. And I actually think it's far too soon to tell which. Don Guttenplan, thank you so much for joining us from London. 
Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen at Emerson College, Los Angeles. We had extra help today from Emily Douglas at The Nation in New York. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>